While some commercial video games have been criticized for stereotyping Native populations, others have actually worked side-by-side with Native communities on the game's development. Take, for example, the 2014 video game Never Alone. It's based on folklore and stories of an Alaskan indigenous population called the Inupiat. You play as a young Inupiat girl and her Arctic fox companion, and you venture through a mighty blizzard to save your village. Along the way, you encounter spirits and characters from Inupiaq stories and learn more about the group's cultural history. I know for a guy from Miami, I learned a hell of a lot. <laughs> I talked with Amy Ferdeen about the video game. She was the lead cultural ambassador for Never Alone. She says their mission was to make sure that Inupiat people were in control of telling their own story in the game. Throughout the game, we had about 24 cultural ambassadors engaged in the making of the game. And what ended up happening is we were filming uh, those cultural ambassadors as we were developing the game. And we realized what a treasure we had in that over 40 hours of footage. So we distilled it down and created these cultural insights in the game. And so essentially, as you see the northern lights come on the screen, once you achieve a certain level, there, you can pause gameplay or you can wait until later to hear about the Sky People and what that really is. The cool thing about this video game is it's built on that story called Kanuk Sayuka, and it is a story about an endless blizzard. The story itself only takes about five minutes to tell, but what we did was we wove in different recurring themes from Alaska Native stories from across Alaska. So whether it's the little people out on the tundra or the sky people, which are the northern lights, or even our spirit helpers. Maybe you could share with me one of your favorite oral histories uh, for those players that get that far. You know, I have to say, I think my favorite one is the Sky People because it's shocking and you see this beautiful feature on the video game and then you hear the story. And I'll paraphrase it. We have several of our cultural ambassadors explain what it is from what they heard from their parents. But essentially, the Aurora Borealis or the Northern Lights are the youth, the youth that passed before they grew up. And so these are little kids who've passed away who are playing in the sky. Hmm. And that sounds beautiful and it's great. Um, But Sky People really was a tool for us to teach our kids um, how to be safe outside. And so you don't go outside and play without your hood up um, because if you did and the Northern Lights went out, those little kids could come down and chop your head off and play football with your head, which is Eskimo football for us. And you would join those Sky People. (laughs) Yes, essentially you would. (laughs) You must have learned a lot in figuring out this story for yourself. What, what was it like uh, searching for this story? 
I have to be honest, it was one of the best gifts I ever had through my job. And one of the most amazing things was being able to really connect to some of our culture bearers in the community. The story Canuck Sayuka is a well-known story across northern Alaska, but Robert Nadrick Cleveland was the storyteller most associated with this particular version of Canuck Sayuka. So we had to go really find the person who was holding the story. We found um, Minnie Gray, who is the eldest surviving child of Robert Nasrick Cleveland. She is um, an elder now and a cultural bearer in her own right. And one of the things we learned from Minnie Gray is that each storyteller tells a story different. They may highlight certain aspects of it so a listener can latch on to a key lesson or they may use a different cadence so that it engages the audience in a different way. But the most powerful message she gave to us was when we first met her in her daughter's apartment. Um, her daughter's apartment was filled with kids and grandkids, and I was really nervous because it was Minnie Gray. She's such a great uh, culture bearer for us. I knew she probably never played a video game in her <laughs> life, so I didn't know how she would feel about us making a video game. But when we explained to her what we wanted to do and how we want to preserve our traditional stories and language through this video game, she said, of course you should be doing this. This is how my grandkids are going to hear the story. And she looked, and there were her grandkids playing games on phones. And so it was one of these amazing times when you just happen to be in a space with an entire family, and you see how that story can live on beyond the current generation. Well, speaking of passing information from one generation to the next, part of that community were high school students, right? Uh, what, did, what did they have to say about this when you first approached them? Yeah, I think there was probably a combination of pure excitement and disbelief. There's not a lot of media examples out there that portray the Alaska Native people in a way that really reflects us as a living people and a living culture. But as we brought the game to test with the youth and as we continued to engage them, you could just see the excitement on their faces. And I think one of my favorite things about the launch of the game is we hosted a booth at the Elders and Youth Conference in Anchorage, Alaska, which is, you know, thousands of elders and youth coming together. Um, and getting to watch two complete strangers from our youth population sit down in a booth and start playing Nuna and the Fox <laughs> together without knowing each other and just seeing the instant connection they made through the gameplay. Well, surely there are other video games that represent indigenous peoples. Are you aware of any? Did you use them by way of comparison? And how is your game distinctive? You know, when we first entered into this agreement with Eline Media to make Never Alone, we did a six-month landscape of what was happening in the video game industry and indigenous cultures. And what we found is there weren't a lot of good examples back then. If there were good games, they weren't a commercial success, or if they were out there, they portrayed indigenous populations in a very stereotypical way, or they right. were pure appropriation. But I think what we 
ended up doing is we looked at other mediums. And so what was happening in movies and some of the successful movies um, back then at the time, we were inspired by movies like Whale Rider, you know, ones that truly took the voice of a community and wove it into the storyline and kept true to it. Are you a parent? I am. How old is or are your kids? My kids are both teenagers. I have my eldest is in college and my youngest is a junior in high school. And I really thought being on a video game design team would make them think I'm cool, but that hasn't happened yet. (laughs) But they both played Never Alone and they've really enjoyed it. They're avid gamers. Well, that is terrific, except did you get pushback from parents saying, well, wait a second, I spend a big part of my day trying to get my kids to go outside to do things other than video games. When we've had those conversations, there's definitely concern, particularly with our traditional activities that kids do still get out there and they do subsistence hunting and fishing. One of the things we're cognizant of is that, you know, our kids are going to be connected to some sort of electronic at least eight hours a day, whether it's their phone or their computer. We want to provide a little avenue for them to go in and have a positive experience through this video game. And it's not that, you know, all games that are shoot 'em up are bad games, but there's not very many games out there that can spark curiosity and interest in what is largely an unknown culture across the world. And so when we did this, we did it with the hope that it could be a very distinct um, experience for our kids seeing themselves on the screen, but also allow them to be proud because they have something in popular media that reflects them as a people. And as lead cultural ambassador wearing that hat, uh, forget the parent hat now, um, (laughs) have you achieved your goal? I think it's achieved way more than I ever dreamed possible. You know, this is a game that even four years after its launch continues to have sales, continues to have an interest from media and research and um, educational um, institutions. And so for us, not only are we seeing the connection our kids are making it here locally, but we know that we've been able to reach over 680 million people across the world. Wow. That is 680 million people who have never heard the Nupiak language spoke. And this entire video game is narrated in the Nupiak language with subtitles. And so that is something more powerful to preserve our culture than we ever dreamed possible. Amy Fredine is the executive vice president and CFO for the Cook Inlet Tribal Council in Anchorage, Alaska. She also served as the lead cultural ambassador for the video game Never Alone. Well, it's pretty courageous of you guys to hand me the controller for this discussion, given <laughs> that I didn't know what a controller was when you handed it to yeah, me. Yeah, your fingers are kind of itchy uh, there. I'm going to try <laughs> I'm going to try not to create any nuclear explosions, okay. all right? I do know, Ed, that you actually enjoy these video games if that's what you call them. 
Well, I have in the past, and it, I was fascinated with them when they were first emerging in the 70s and 80s, and uh, we bought all these new games on floppy disks, so you get Oregon Trail with the famous one, and it came on like multiple floppy disks that you had to swap in and out, and I just found it fascinating that you could, well, there's this whole new medium and we might do something remarkable in it. And the fact that Oregon Trail emerged so early and it was so captivating. Uh, so I would sit there with my kids on on my lap and we would navigate the Oregon Trail together. Uh, I'd have to say as I grew older and the kids grew older, my son really got into them. But then I decided that, you know, I just don't really have much to, to do with them. <laughs> I do think it's one of the clearest markers of generations, uh, the sort of commitment to playing a video game as a leading form of entertainment. Well, well, let's test that we just theory. Had a young person and if in only the room we had us. a younger per- Oh, <laughs> is that you laughing, Nathan? He's laughing at it us, is. not with us, Brian. <laughs> All right. Is Ed right in his theory based on an N of three? Soleji watarima watasan. That is Japanese that I learned from playing a video game called Soul Calibur 2. And I played it... <laughs> Hours after hours, it means no one will take Soul Edge from me, which is this mythical sword that animates the game. And there are are tons of Japanese phrases that I'll spare you because I know my Japanese only goes as far as what I can remember from the video game. That sounded very (laughs) persuasive. You certainly convinced me, yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, the the Oregon Trail bug was something that I actually encountered as an elementary school kid. And, you know, it was um, in some ways a starter for games like Chivalry, games like Dynasty Warriors. Um, you know, there are, are, are tons of these games that emerge that are absolutely immersive in their evocation of history. Dynasty Warriors in particular is a game based on basically, you know, the founding myth of the nation of China. So three kingdoms that emerge, the, the opening of the Han Dynasty, and there are kingdoms that are, you know, full of mythical warriors. And you can take any one of them and effectively recreate Chinese history. And so as a, you know, teenager, even a 20-something, you know, I would spend hours playing this game and you can play it online with friends and you literally get to recraft the story of the making of these dynasties. Um, you know, Soul Calibur, where I gave you my little Japanese, you know, piece is actually mythical, but rooted in 16th century, you know, mercenary culture. So, you know, there's a, there's a way in which these environments, again, like Red Dead Redemption or Oregon Trail are key to how you connect so strongly with them historically. I'm not really certain that what I said is true. Is it that clear a generational marker or not? Well, I think there are reasons now why, you know, one, people who are a variety of different ages are associated with and tapping into video games, right? Online gaming from what the research shows has, you know, people in their 60s down to pre-puberty kids, right, who are playing these games on the same platform. And I think it's really stark because there are very few aspects of American life where elders and kids and middle-aged people are actually encountering each other as peers. So that, to me, represents a really important historical breakthrough, frankly. You've noticed that what film and TV are really good at about history is the way things look. We can recover that. Mm -hmm. It strikes me the only thing that we can really know is authentic is that this looks like what I think ancient China looked like. This looks like what I think (laughs) Japan was looked like in the age of the samurai, whatever. Right. Does it create the illusion of authenticity in which all the affect and the actions of of people are really ourselves being projected back into those environments? I think there are illusory elements to it, right? There's an element of illusion, certainly. But as we have seen, as the games themselves have gotten bigger, more expansive, 
they've tapped historians, right? I mean, you know, franchises like Assassin's Creed have historians on the payroll, right? Red Dead Redemption couldn't be built without historians who've done work in, you know, turn of the century Western America. Even Oregon Trail had certain elements of it that were rooted in what scholars ultimately uncovered. And so I think there's a, a real expectation nowadays, frankly, that you can't just make this stuff up, right? That there has to be some way that you can ground this in a somewhat more real, sometimes more scholarly understanding of the past. But why does Red Dead Redemption look a lot more like the TV westerns I watched growing up in the 1960s mm. than anything I've read among the scholarship in the last 25 years? That's a phenomenal question. Um, and, and I think, you know, it points to the fact that for many of us of this generation, our chief referent to history before video games was, you know, yeah. television, right? And so the visual grammar of TV is going to be there. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's more of a mashup of TV history and written history than, you know, even I would acknowledge from the outset. But I still think you have to have something there at the level of language, at the level of custom, of environment, that in some cases the old, you know, TV studios weren't always necessarily committed to, to capturing. So they are authentic. They're authentic to the TV images right. that we have, right? right. Just <laughs> as early TV was authentic to radio that came before it. Yeah, right. I just want to say, I think anything that gets millions of people interested in a historical period is probably a good thing as long as we do our jobs uh, to let them know what things were really like once that interest is peaked. I don't know. The, the interview that uh, I did with uh, Esther Wright suggests that to spend almost a billion dollars to make a game in which large parts, the majority of the population uh, is marginalized in exactly the same way as older media is mm. actually setting us back. Mm. Well, so that's a good point. Yeah. So does that mean you think we really shouldn't try that the logics of game playing and the logics of history don't really align enough that we could use this incredibly immersive environment to recreate historic scenarios that we would actually learn something about by exploring? I would here connect back to, to Brian's point about television, right, which is that television provided a certain site of American myth-making. And I think video games, similarly to your point, Ed, have that danger of, of giving us a flat picture. And the fact is that that is not going to go away. The platform of gaming is not going to go away. In fact, it's only going to become more immersive with things like virtual reality and such, right? Right, right. I didn't become a video game mm -hmm programmer, in spite of all the hours I spent playing gaming. I became a historian. And what the difference was for me was that video games could never approach the magic of touching a primary document, right, of actually coming into physical contact with the past. And in that sense, there's always going to be an advantage that we'll have as scholars and who are teaching this material and who are putting the, the past literally in students' hands. Instead of that controller, right, when you roll up to an actual primary source of parchment, you know, you see an old picture. I mean, that kind of tactile connection to the past is really powerful. And I would say that, you know, that's going to always be our advantage over whatever digital platform next emerges to try to, you know, capture fragments of the past. I mean, I think we're always going to be able to touch students and, you know, even other communities in much more visceral and meaningful ways because we are able to connect them with the actual stuff. And to me, that is encouraging. 